morning, Hope Elam. Good to see all of you. I don't know, I was kind of rocking out to that jazzed up version of Amazing Grace a little bit there. We are so glad that you are here. I want to welcome those of you that are in the room, those of you worshiping with us online. We are so glad that you are here. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to dig into God's word with you today and look at exactly that, how the most important thing, the most important aspect of our faith is our relationship with God. Now, depending on your church background, depending on your church experience, there's probably a lot of different things that are swirling through your head about what all of this is all about. And you add to that the fact that I know for maybe a lot of you worshiping with us online and you're checking things out, maybe as Jed said, this is one of your first times here in the building. We're a new church. And so you're asking the question, what is this all about? Why, why, why did we have this gigantic building and why do we have the, the lights and the, the sound and the band and the clapping and why, why is all this happening? What's the point of all this? Is it to have a big show? Is it to have a lot of people? Is it to uh, have a concert every week and, and, and put on a show in that way? Is it, is it, I have to come and be a part of Hope Elam? Do I have to look a certain way? Do I have to act a certain way? I mean, what's this all about? And because we're new, a lot of people are asking that question. What is this church all about? And let me answer that question loud and clear. It's about Jesus. Can we say Jesus nice and loud? Jesus. No, I say it like you mean it. It's, it's early, but let's say it like you mean it. Say Jesus. Jesus. We are all about Jesus. It's our number one value as a church. Jesus is life, and the rest is just details. That's what we are about, to know him and to make him known. Jesus himself made it very, very clear what the ultimate goal of our faith is. It's not to look a certain way or talk a certain way or belong to a certain type of church or have a certain worship style or whatever it is. It is to know him. In John chapter 17, let's read this together. Jesus himself says, the apostle John writes this. Let's read it together. Now this is life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want to find life? Find Jesus. It's that simple. You want to find life? Find Jesus. Not church attendance by itself, not a list of rules being followed, not being a better person, but knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus, that's why we exist. And so a lot of other things fall along the wayside so that we can get people connected to Jesus Christ. And for those of you that were worshiping with us uh, last week, uh, online or in person, we got a glimpse of that. Uh, you know, from time to time, well, every week, the Spirit's moving here at Hope Elam. Amen? And we don't know exactly what the Spirit is going to do from week to week. And so we had a, a dear sister that was here worshiping with us last week, and she felt the Holy Spirit moving and at work in her life. We believe that he was doing that long before she ever got to uh, worship. And she felt the Spirit moving uh, and le leading her to put her faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. And it just so happened to be during Pastor Her sermon. And so she wanted to take that step. And so right then and there, we walked her through it. And this congregation has a brand new sister in Christ. Praise God. So why did we do that? Because that's the most important thing. 
because she matters to God, because nothing could be more important. And so since we followed up with her and we've talked about what that means, it's not just a one and done, quick hit, top of the, the mountain type of experience with our emotions, and then we leave it and move on. We want to walk alongside of you, just like every single one of you. Discipleship is a journey. It's a pathway. We want to help you follow Jesus, and we're helping her get connected here in the church family. But we also want to recognize for some of us, because we're a new church and this is new, some of you experience that or you're just hearing about it now going, whoa, that's weird. That's strange. That might be different. This might be a little bit different than I'm used to. And as we've been learning, I feel like I'm saying this every week, but it applies in so many different situations. We've talked about a few weeks ago with whether with worship or prayer or preaching, whatever it is, just because something is different doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because something is different doesn't mean it's wrong. And we fear things that we don't understand. And we make assumptions about things that we don't understand. And as a new church, it's really important that we kind of get our, our, our guides, our, our values in line. And our primary question as a church is not, does this experience fit in my comfort zone? Our primary question is, is that in the Bible? And that's our guiding principle. It might be in the Bible, and it might be way outside of your box. But we don't stop because, well, I, this is new for me, or I've never experienced this before. And so when we experience something new, whether that be prayer or worship or preaching or a certain kind of ministry or something like that, we ask this question, God, what are you trying to show me? That's what mature disciples do. They don't push it aside and say, that doesn't fit my box. God, what are you trying to show me? And what the Lord reminded me last week, I don't know about you, but he reminded me is that the Spirit works in many ways, not just those I'm familiar with. The Spirit works in many ways, not just those I'm familiar with, especially when it comes to people coming to faith. We're doing our Alpha course right now, and one of the things, kind of the humorous analogies that we use in Alpha, if you're kind of looking around going, well, I don't know if I would want that to happen to me. Uh, first of all, just so you know, for some people, coming to faith is a very quick experience. For some of you, you can remember the, the year, the month, the day, the moment that God broke into your life, and sometimes the Holy Spirit does that. You can say, I remember when I gave my life to Christ. I remember when I put my faith in Jesus. We would call that a microwave experience, right? Boop, zap, right? Jesus gets you, and sometimes he does that, and that's in the Bible. But for others of you, it's not a microwave experience. It's more of a crockpot experience in coming to faith, okay? Like, that, that wasn't it for me. I, I didn't give my life to Jesus on the spot. For me, I've kind of always known Jesus, and my, I grew up maybe in the church, and my parents uh, led me in this way, and then at a certain point, I realized, hey, God's been in my life all along, and I just want to acknowledge that, but there's not like a definitive moment at 9.59 on February 21st that that happened for me, and that's okay, and you know what? That's in the Bible, the, those experiences of coming to faith and everywhere in between are both biblical and one's not better than another. Amen? And as we learned a couple weeks ago, we can't put worship in a box. We can't put prayer in a box. We can't put coming to faith in a box. The moment we start to say this is spiritual and that's not spiritual, then you have put the God of the universe in a box in your comfort zone of what you're familiar with. Well, I've never seen anybody come to faith like that. God's just that big, and God's just that good. And if you could understand all of the ways that God works, well, then he would not be God. 
So that's very comforting to me that we don't always understand how that works. One is not better than another, but the dangerous thing is when we start saying, well, this type of prayer is more spirit-filled, or this is more spiritual, or this type of worship, or this type of way that people come to faith. It's very, very important that we define that as a church. Spirit-filled is not a genre of music. Spirit-filled is not a style of prayer or worship. Spirit-filled is when our hearts collectively are surrendered to God. Amen? That's what it means to be spirit-filled, okay? And that can happen, and that can happen in a variety of churches. That can happen in a church with 800 people. That can happen in a church with eight people. It's about the posture of our hearts. And so we, what we want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt is we want to walk alongside you in this. We want Hope Elam to be a safe place spiritually for every single one of you, for you to take those steps of faith when you're ready. You are never going to get any pressure from us. Hear us say that. The Holy Spirit moves, and it's our job to follow. And sometimes you see the worship team doing that. Sometimes you see us as pastors doing that. And I will say this about my friend and my brother, Pastor Hurst. I am so glad that in the moment he was open to the Holy Spirit's leading in that. I am so thankful for that, okay? And is that going to happen every week? Probably not, because the Holy Spirit shows up in different ways ways, but we follow the Holy Spirit's leading in that moment. Jesus talked about leaving the 99 to find the one. Every single one of us matter to God. Every single one of you matter to God, and so you matter to us. You experiencing Jesus Christ is way more important than either of us getting through our sermon notes. Somebody experiencing Jesus Christ and putting their faith in him is way more important than us having the worship go the way that we thought it was going to go. We make our plans. God determines our steps. He's the one that sets the course. And so if there's any ways that we can be praying for you, if you're like, I don't really feel comfortable like, like putting my faith in Jesus in a public setting in front of a bunch of people, that's totally fine. But we would love to know that. So come talk to us. Come to one of our prayer partners. Schedule a time to meet with us. We would love to talk with you more about that. The goal of our faith is a relationship with God, which is the reason that we're happened to be in the season that we're in right now called Lent. And because we're a new church and we're forming some traditions, again, this may be new for you. So let me repeat. Just because something is different doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it irrelevant. Some of you, I've never done Lent before, so I'm not going to do it. Why? Is that how you operate in your relationship with God? Well, I've never experienced that before. It must be bad. I'm just going to stick with what I grew up with. Oh, but you're missing out on so much of God. What if he wanted to do something new in and through you? So let me, let's just take Lent at face value, this, this season of the church year, the 40 days leading up to Easter. Let's just take it at face value. Is there anybody here that would love to experience more of God today? Okay, seven of you. Great. Is there anybody here that wants to experience more of God? Can I get an amen? Okay. Is there anybody here that would like to develop some healthy habits? Amen? Right. Is there anybody here that would like to experience some rhythms of rest and renewal? Anybody? Okay. If you raised your hand to any of those, Lent is for you. It's not about the tradition. It's about experiencing Jesus. And if some traditions can help us get there, by all means, let's do it. Whatever it takes, whatever gets the Jesus thing going, even if it's not familiar to you. 
I was talking with a friend this past week and we, the Lent came up and he's like, John, I kind of see it like this. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I feel like for the last year with everything that's been going on, I've been asleep spiritually. I've been asleep. I've been like sleepwalking spiritually. He said, you know what? I think after talking through this, it's time for me to wake up. It's time for me to wake up. That is the essence of Lent. If some of you have been sleepwalking through your faith, it's time to wake up. Up. It's time to get reconnected. And we want to offer you some very specific, concrete ways to do that. We want to just talk about it. We want to point you in some direction. So go ahead and go to the next slide. These are just some things we want to challenge you with during this season. If weekly worship is not a priority for you, whether in person or online, our prayer is that it would become that. It's spiritual exercise. It's a get-to, not a got-to. It's how we connect with each other weekly and stay connected. Maybe, as Pastor Hurst said earlier, it's, it's community. It's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to page two, whether online or in person. I'm going to plug into one of our many small groups here at Hope Elam. We also have a, a Lent devotional that's specific for Hope Elam, and it takes you to different locations around the city to experience God in new ways. This is available for download online and at the Welcome Center. This is an excellent way to see God in the midst of your everyday life. It'll take you 10 minutes. And let me just say this. I know this may sound a little challenging, but if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. If you're too busy to spend 10 minutes a day solely intentionally focused on God, even in the middle of your lunch break, something's got to change. It's not healthy. So maybe it's time to create that new habit. And finally, to serve. You see these people walking around with blue shirts on today. They are the heart and soul of our church. We could not do what we do without our awesome volunteers. And maybe it's here locally. Maybe it's, yeah, praise God. Praise God for our volunteers. You bet. And maybe it's not just here locally, it may be globally as well. As you've heard about our Lenten project, all of our campuses at Hope, now the country of El Salvador just being devastated by the, by the pandemic. Uh, and so many things going on, ways that you can serve. You can give to our mission partner, Convoy of Hope, that's on the ground right now in Texas. And a lot of the southern states helping just people. It's incredible, the devastation there. They're not, just not equipped for things like this. And so our mission partner, Convoy of Hope, is already down there sending multiple semi-trucks full of food and water down to help those people out. So there's multiple ways that, yeah, praise God, you can give back and serve as well. So during the season of Lent, Hope Elam, maybe it's time to wake up. Everybody say, wake up. It's time to wake up. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to land today. That is the world's longest sermon introduction. So I promise we'll stay on time today. Luke chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, we are kicking off a brand new series at all of our campuses today called 40 Days of Renewal. And it's about this exact thing that we just talked about. I want to become a brand new person, God. I want to get reconnected to you during this season. And over the next few weeks, Pastor Hurst and I are going to walk you through several stories that center around kind of the subplot of the number 40. Uh, the first part of the year, we focused on the number 7, and now we're going to this other very, very uh, powerful biblical number of 40, which always means kind of a season of preparation, like Lent or development, or like our story today, a season of testing of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, I'm sure that when you woke up this morning, first of all, you were like, oh man, uh, that's really pretty snow. And the second thing you said was, man, I hope that the sermon is on temptation today. I just love, I love talking about that. Everybody's favorite topic is temptation. Well, even if it's not, regardless of how you feel, temptation is something that we all face. 
you never grow spiritually out of temptation. How do we know that? Jesus was tempted. So if you think that you're beyond this topic, if you think that you're beyond this struggle and this battle, I would take a second look because that's where we're starting today. Jesus himself was tempted. So in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And this is right after Jesus is baptized. He's filled with the Spirit. And the devil comes with three different temptations here in Luke chapter 4. Three, another biblical number that we'll get to at some point. But at face value... This story doesn't maybe seem very relatable or in touch to you. How how many of you have ever uh, been in the wilderness for 40 days after fasting and then experienced and talked to the devil devil one-on-one? Anybody had that experience? Maybe not, right? So at face value, stories like this can seem a little out of touch because you're like, I turn a stone into bread? That's not what I deal with on a daily basis. Let me ask you this. Let's just walk through these. Dig a little deeper. The point is the real temptations. Verse 4. Maybe the temptation is not for us is not just to turn the stone into bread, but we've all struggled with the lie that anything else besides Jesus will satisfy. And we run to all sorts of different things. Verse 8. Maybe your temptation is not actually to bow down and worship the devil. But every single day we are tempted to put anything above God. That's called idolatry. That's something that every single one of us struggle with. Human relationships, hobbies, food, substances, my job, whatever it is. Anything we put on the throne instead of God. Verse 12, maybe the temptation is not to throw yourself down from a high mountain and test God. But I think all of us at one point or another have thought, you know what? I can just kind of live my life however I want and God will come along and bless it. God, this is is the way that I think I want to go. This is a decision that I'm going to make. God, can you come alongside and bless that? And I'll just nuance some scripture to fit what I want to do. But notice what Jesus does every single time. It's not just about what the temptations are. It's how Jesus confronts them. Don't miss this. Every single time, how does Jesus resist? He's not trying really hard. It's God's word. You notice that in the scripture reading? Every single time, man does not live by bread alone. Over and over and over. This is the key right here. Don't leave a sermon about temptation with the motto running through your head, I'm gonna go try harder for God. That is so opposite of the gospel. Instead, what Jesus is showing us, for Jesus Resisting temptation was about God's power, not willpower. And some of you will go through the entire season of Lent if you're giving something up, if you're trying to create a new habit, and you'll do the exact opposite. Well, for those 40 days, God, I tried really, really hard to give up coffee. I tried really, really hard to give up chocolate. I tried really, really hard to get more sleep, whatever it is. And all those things are good and helpful and important. I think Jesus looks at you and your struggle with all those things and says, I just wanted you. I just wanted you. And it's not about being, being good enough or trying harder willpower. It's about God's power. Notice when tempted that Jesus doesn't even mess around with it. He doesn't even flirt with it. Jesus is demonstrating up for us that every single one of us is going to get tempted. That's not the sin. That's not what we're talking about today. It's how do we respond to it. When you are tempted, do you flirt with it? Do you you play around with it? 
I want to give you a little behind-the-scenes thing here. Pastor Hurst and I, as we're getting to know each other, you want to know what his, one of his favorite sayings is? This will be fun. You can throw this at him later on. Okay? It's, it's, we all have our little quirks and sayings. When he's not messing around, he's not beating around the bush, you know what Pastor Hurst says? I ain't playing. You ever heard that? I ain't playing. Okay? And the reason I bring that up, Jesus ain't playing. In Luke chapter 4, he looks at the devil and says, I ain't playing. I'm going straight to the word of God. Okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus ain't playing. Tell him that right now. Jesus ain't playing. He ain't playing. That's for free. You can have that. That wasn't in the notes. He doesn't flirt with it. He doesn't stare at it and say, I wonder, I wonder with temptation, I wonder with sin, how, how close can I get to the line without stepping over? Jesus actually says, I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to run to his word. I'm going to go as far as I can in the opposite direction instead of just trying to dip my toes over the edge. When you flirt with temptation, you are bound to fall in. And nobody knows that better than a little boy that on this quick video I want to show you is put to a test by his dad. And I don't I know what kind of accent uh, this is exactly, but they're not from Iowa. I'll tell you that. But he's put to the test by his dad with some candy. Watch what happens when we flirt with temptation. Take a look. He did it! He did it! Turns out the little guy did better than his mom did at resisting temptation. And you know how he did that? He trusted his dad. And Jesus did the exact same thing in Luke chapter 4. Just like Jesus. You might say, well, John, that's cute. And I, yeah, I, think, I don't know what that accent was. I think it was Minnesotan. Um, you might say, okay, that's cute and everything, but that's candy. Yeah, what's your candy? What's your candy? What are the things that you run to when nobody else is watching? The little, the little lies, the temptation that his mom was kind of testing him with. He won't know. He won't, he won't find out. What are the things that call out for your attention when you think nobody else will know about? Because the older we get, the temptations are not on a plate. They're on our hearts and our minds. What are the things that are going on in your life right now that you are convinced nobody else knows about? Well, I know one other person that knows about it, and it's the God that knows everything about you. And he wants to set you free today. And some of you are looking at this text with Jesus and saying, I, I can't relate to that. I just want to remind you that, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. Jesus was tempted in every single way that you are tempted today. But if you have a hard time relating with that, there's countless other stories in the Bible of humans just like you and I, men and women just like you and I, that struggled with the same things that we struggle with. Whatever your candy is, whatever that temptation that's right in front of you is just like a man named David. And so I want to take a detour back to the Old Testament and say, well, maybe we can relate to David. He's a man just like us. Yes, little slingshot shepherd boy David becomes the king of Israel. If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we're going to be for the rest of our time today. And we're going to look at the story of King David behind the scenes. In fact, if you were here for Ash Wednesday, you know that our scripture that night was Psalm 51 that is written by David, this prayer of repentance. And so what we're going to do today is look at the story behind Psalm 51. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is what we're going to look at today. 
David's prayer of repentance. But we're going to look at what led to Psalm 51. And we're going to look at some keys in our battle with temptation. But also the process of restoration. We're going to look at the pathway to redemption. Because if we can just be honest, for some of you, the thing that's on the top of your heart and your mind today is not what temptation you're facing. For some of you, the biggest thing you're struggling with right now is regret, is guilt, is shame over something that happened last week or 30 years ago, the mistake you made in college, the person you hurt, the relationship, the breakup, the divorce, the substance abuse, whatever it was, and there's so much guilt and shame out of that today. Not only do we learn how to deal with temptation through David's story, but we also find the pathway to restoration. Okay, so we're going to do kind of a David Letterman type thing here and do a top 10 list, and I promise we'll fly through this, okay? The top 10 keys to resisting temptation and restoration, we start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Okay? So let's stop right there. Before anything we happens, we know that David is not where he normally is. He is at home. He's not out with his comrades. He's alone. He's most likely relaxed, and he's not focusing. And there's nothing wrong with that unless David realized it was the perfect setup. When you are alone... You have no accountability. When you are alone, it's easier to let down your guard. Most likely, David is tired and exhausted from war. And he's maybe a little lonely. And that's when he notices the lady. Let's pause right there. Do you know what your triggers are when it comes to temptation? Key number one, know your triggers. Before the battle of temptation even starts. A mentor taught me this really helpful acronym one time. It's HALT. H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. If you're any of those things, HALT. Don't make any decisions. Okay? That's a really helpful acronym for me is there are times when I want to give up, when I want to quit, when I've got a big decision. I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Not going to do it. I'm not in my right frame of mind in that situation. I'm not going to take a step forward. I'm not going to act on that impulse or that feeling. H-A-L-T, but David does. The temptation's not the sin. It's when we act on it. So number one, know your triggers. When are you most vulnerable? Is it late at night? Is it when you're all alone? Is it when your spouse leaves for a business trip? Is it in front of the computer? What are your triggers. You, you know those, and most importantly, God knows those, so talk to him about it. Verse number two, late one afternoon as he was out over the city on his uh, patio on the top of his roof, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty. That's how I describe Tiffany every single day. She has unusual beauty. Taking a bath. Verse three, he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That should have been the end of the story. There should be no rest of the story. That Know your triggers. How about when they're right in front of your face? Anybody in their right mind, it should have ended right there, but David went with his feelings. The second key we learn from what David didn't do, key number two, resisting temptation tomorrow starts with the decision today. 
There was something in David's heart that was still up in the air about this, that maybe adultery was still an option, that taking another man's wife was an option. But if that, start, if that decision was already made, it's not an option. What do we mean by that? Do you wait to the moment that you're tempted to decide what your non-negotiables are? To know what God says? When it, when it comes to situations where there is potential for temptation, is your, is your general attitude, well, we'll kind of wait and see what happens. We'll kind of see how I'm feeling in the moment. Or have you decided ahead of time what those boundaries are? These are the boundaries that I'm going to honor God with. You know, I, I'm going to go out tonight, so we'll just kind of see what everybody else is doing. We'll see how the night goes. And that was David's mentality. Because as David found out, here's our next key. Number three, following feelings alone rarely ends well. Following, following feelings alone rarely ends well. There is a prevalent belief in our culture today that says your feelings are the ultimate truth. Are the ultimate truth. And, and don't hear me wrong. Feelings are very, very important. But the, the prevalent belief in our culture is that for you to resist those urges and those feelings or to fight those, somehow you're not being authentic to yourself. You know, be you. Everybody's trying to be you. And when you have feelings and urges and desires, when something pops into your mind, you know, just go with that. And let me be very, very clear. This is a helpful way for me to understand it. Your mind will always be a battlefield. Your mind will always be a battlefield, but you are its commander, not its slave. Read that again. Your mind will always be a battlefield. You're going to battle temptation for the rest of your life. But you decide which thoughts you take captive. You decide which of those you surrender to Jesus. You are its commander, not its slave. You are not a slave to the impulses and the random feelings and urges that come into your heart and your mind. If you act on every single one of those, you are led by your flesh and you're not led by the Spirit. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have crucified your flesh. It no longer lives. Christ lives in you. So you surrender those to Jesus. Feelings are very important. They're just not the truest thing about us. Think about it this way. It's like a, like a train, right? When a train's going, there's a train that's in the front and then all the ones in the back. Biblically, God says, I, I want you to have these convictions that are based on God's word, that are based on the Bible. That's the front car of the train. That leads and guides every decision that you make. Then we go to other trusted people. Do you have people in your life that you can reach out to for wisdom? And then an important thing to factor in is how you feel about it. We don't want to just throw that away. God gave us those feelings for a reason. When you have feelings and worship, when you feel God's presence, that's really important. But that's not the lead car. <laughs> the lead car is God's word and the convictions that you have, then godly wisdom from other people, trusted people, and then your feelings. Here's what you and I do. We flip it around. I felt like doing it. It seemed like the right thing to do. It's what everybody else was doing. Oh, maybe I'll ask some people what, on Facebook what they think. And if I get around to it, uh, maybe I'll ask God, but I already went with it. And it's dangerous when we flip that around. Whether it's how should I spend my money or what boundaries should we have in our dating or our courtship or should I look at that website or not or should I just be done with my marriage? Which order do you use in your decision making? How do you make decisions? Instead, 
this is a really important thing to remember. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Discipline. When we talk about having a disciplined mind, God has given you a spirit of discipline, Paul says to Timothy. Discipline is choosing what I want most over what I want now. Discipline is choosing what I want most over what I want now. And what I want most (laughs) is the deeper joy of pleasing God. I want a prize that's deeper than what my feelings and urges are telling me. And I can't decide that just in the moment. Ask David. David, are you glad you went with your impulses in that moment when you saw Bathsheba taking a bath? Are you glad you just led with your feelings? And because David is powerful, because he's the king, he can do anything he wants, he calls for Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He sleeps there and he sends her away. And no one, nobody needs to know, right? In verse 14, he arranges for Uriah, one of his key leaders in his army, his own army, to be sent to the front lines. Why? Because if he's dead, he can't find out. Verse 17, Uriah is killed, and that leads to key number four. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Sin can't solve another sin. Or, as your mom taught you, two wrongs don't make a right. It's right there in the Bible. You can't cover up one sin with another sin. You can't drive out darkness with darkness. So David then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And as you go along in the story in verse 27, this is a powerful statement. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. And there's key number five. No one is above sin. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what your position is. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care if you're a celebrity. I don't care how popular you are. I don't care your church attendance. God cares about all those things, but none of those make you immune to temptation. Can you, we just kind of look at our world the last few years? People that are in high and prominent positions. What was the number one reason that they struggle with this in the first place? They're untouchable in their positions of leadership. There's no accountability. They're alone. They thought they were immune. And David's about to find that out. Now we arrive at chapter 12 and God sends a close friend, Nathan, to confront David. Nathan the prophet. Nathan goes on to tell David this parable of a man who stole something of great value that was not his. And he's abusing his privileges of power. In verse 5, this is rather ironic. David burned with anger against the man. He's, he's outraged at this story. He's not even connecting the dots. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this in this illustration, in this story, must die. And then Nathan turns to David, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and says, you are that man. I believe the correct theological term here is busted. You ever been there? That might have been the best thing that ever happened to David. Number six, find some truth tellers, a.k.a. real friends. Nathan was not the friend that David wanted. Nathan was the friend that David needed. And some of you have friends that won't tell you at all what you really need to hear. 
If you find somebody that is willing to tell you what you need to hear, even if it hurts, keep that friend close. That is a real friend, okay? That is a Nathan type of friend. One of the best ways that we can battle temptation before it starts is to have an inner circle. Not, not big, but just a few people. Two, three, four people that know you, that have access to your life on a regular basis that you can come clean with. One of the best things I started doing about five or six years ago is I've got two other guys, just the three of us, and we meet every single week. And the greatest gift that they give to me is that I can be John. Because pastors are human beings too. And we have struggles and we have fears and we have doubts. Do you have a group? Do you have those people that you can be real with? They need me and I need them. And I can be real and I can be broken and I can be imperfect. And I've confessed things to them. I say, here's, here's what I got going on. And here's what I get back from them. You're forgiven. There's no condemnation for you. We love you. And John... Stop it. That's not who you are. They remind me of my identity. That's not who you are. Do you have some trusted allies? Do you have some truth tellers in your life? And that leads to number seven. Key number seven, what David discovered, maybe what you've discovered in your own life. The enemy of freedom is isolation. That's one of the reasons that every single person, Pastor, Pastor Michael and I have been on the phone, on Zoom, every single day for the last few months, calling you, checking in with you, talking to people. And one of the questions we ask again and again and again, are you in community? Are you in a group? The number one tactic of the enemy is to get us alone and isolated. And I understand that's difficult during a pandemic. It is one thing to be isolated. It is another thing to not have any friends. You can do it. You can reach out to people. You can give people access to your life. The enemy knows if I get you alone, it's much easier to believe lies. It's much easier to stay in guilt and shame. The greatest gift that a friend can give you is one person looking at another, whether through Zoom or in person, and looking at each other and saying, me too. Oh, I'm not the only one that struggles with that. Oh, we're in this fight together. And so in this moment with Nathan, David has a choice. Deny the mess or come clean. And every day you and I have that choice as well. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Key number eight, confession is the first step to restoration. Confession is the first step to restoration. Because David came clean, we have one of the most beautiful prayers, what we looked at on Ash Wednesday. Psalm 51. David prays this simple prayer. Let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. When's the last time you prayed, God, have mercy on me? When's the last time that you said the two words, that will transform any relationship, your spouse, friendship, parenting, coworker, two words that will transform any relationship. I'm sorry. Have some of you been there where you've been in the heat of a battle or heat of an argument and one of you just says, I'm sorry. And all of a sudden the walls of tension just come crashing down. Maybe I'm not offended anymore. Maybe I, I, I can see the situation from, from your perspective. 
I was wrong. And I get it, depending on what you've done or how long you've been in hiding with whatever you're struggling with today, that's scary. But you're missing out on the gifts of joy and grace and freedom. Now, were there consequences to David's actions? Absolutely, and there's stories about that. But it didn't stop David from receiving the gift of God's grace. Where is God's grace today in the midst of your mistakes, in the midst of your sin? Right where you fell. Right where you fell. So receive it. It's waiting for you. And David reminds us of something powerful. As you go on and you read Psalm 51 later on in that psalm in verse 16 and 17, David says this, You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Key number nine. Repentance is accepting grace, not making a payment. Because I guarantee that there are some of you that might be listening to this today and you're thinking about that one thing that if people found out about, that if your spouse found out about, that if your friends, if your church, if your coworkers found out about, you would be devastated. And you are so remorseful for that and you have so much guilt and shame that the thing that we go to is we say, well, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, pay, I gotta make that payment somehow. I, I, gotta, I gotta be a better person. I gotta show up at worship every week. I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta, I gotta pray more. I gotta try harder. I gotta be better. <laughs> Jesus says, I just want you. Why? Because you can't pay a bill that's already been paid. And that bill was paid 2,000 years ago on the cross. Once and for all. Amen? That bill has been paid. You cannot pay a bill that's already been paid. There is nothing that you have done that God cannot forgive. There is no sin that is too great that God's grace can't cover it. Are there consequences to our sin? Yes, but you do not have to carry that guilt and that shame around with you. He's not angry with you today. And some of you have been living with that assumption that God is so angry with you, that he hates you, that you're not worthy, that you're not valuable because of a mistake that you've made, because of an addiction that you're battling right now, because of this ugly sin or habit that has plagued you for so long. That's not who you are. You are a child of God, and there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You can let it go. And that's the most beautiful part of the whole story. We remember David as a great hero, that he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect. Key number 10. The other side of confession is always joy. Is always joy. Psalm 32 puts it this way. Oh, the joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. What joy for those who record the Lord's is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. <laughs> you want to know who wrote Psalm 32? David. David, who discovered the joy of coming clean. I have heard so many people say, oh, Pastor John, we've all got skeletons in our closet. What if you didn't have to? What if today was the day that you, you, you pulled the, the door open and let it all come out? God knows that anyway. He sees you and he knows you. Maybe this 40-day season of Lent is time to come clean with God. What are some action steps? What are some action steps that we can take? Very simple. It might be daily time in the Bible for you. It might be winning the battle before it's fought. Notice when Jesus went into the wilderness, the first thing it said, he was full of the Spirit. Are you? Or are you scraping from the bottom of the barrel? 
Don't fight the battle alone. Daily time in the Bible. Maybe it's finding your group. Maybe it's finding some trusted truth-tellers in your life that know you. If you need help with that, call us. We can help you get connected. Number three, maybe it's time to come clean. Sit down with your spouse. Have the conversation. Call your mom. Call your dad. Call your sibling. Make the call. Write the letter. Send the post. Set up the meeting. It's time to come clean. And last but not least, maybe it's about seeking help. One of the biggest myths out there is that counseling is somehow for those that are really, really messed up and have issues. Well, let me break it to you. You are messed up and have issues. I am messed up and have issues. Counseling should be as normal as coming to church. We're broken, and you can't do it alone. What's your next step today. That's what Lent is all about. It's about waking up. It's about having a fresh start and discovering God's grace. You are a child of God. And so what we're going to do is, I'm going to actually invite you to stand right now, and we're going to end in prayer, and then the worship team is going to lead us in a final worship song. And what we're going to do is we're just going to pray a simple prayer of confession. We're not going to call you out. We're not going to put pressure on you. God knows everything about you. He sees you, and he knows you. And there are certain messages that are hard to hear, but they're really, really important. And the reason we're talking about this today is because there's joy on the other side. There's joy on the other side of confession. And Jesus wants to set you free. And you might feel today like you need to pay the penalty, like you're guilty, like you're ashamed, like you need to go to the cross. And you know what the devil does? He just pounds at us. The devil's got a really big hammer and he wants to nail you to that cross and say, you have to pay for it because you deserve the punishment. The devil's got a really big hammer, but he doesn't have any nails. Nothing can hold you there. Those nails have already been pounded at once. Jesus already took that penalty for you. And so we can come clean and we can experience the love and the joy and the peace and the goodness of God. The freedom that comes with having your closets laid bare. That God, you know everything about me and there's a few other trusted people in my life that I've come clean with and I don't have to hide anymore. I can live in freedom just like David. I can be set free from all of my past and all of my mistakes and all of my guilt and all of my shame. And so if you feel comfortable, just open up your hands in a, in a posture of surrender. Remember being spirit-filled isn't a genre or a style. Being spirit-filled is surrendering your heart. And so we're just going to pray together. If you want to pray along in, in the silence of your own heart, please do that with me. Jesus, as we start this season of Lent together, we want all of you. But first, God, we want you to empty of us of ourselves. And so right now, God, those things that we know that maybe nobody else does except you, we name those in our hearts. And Jesus, we claim that promise today that if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just. God, we feel the enemy just pounding at us with condemnation. We feel the enemy reminding us of those past mistakes and those past failure. 
it feels like he's got a really big hammer, but there aren't any nails. Jesus, you took the nails for us. And so we confess these things. We bring these things to you. As our hands are open, our hearts are open to you. Jesus, we give you full access to our lives. Every room, every closet laid bare, every part of our lives. This is what Ash Wednesday, this is what Lent is all about. So Jesus, we start this journey together and we ask for your forgiveness and we know, Jesus, that your forgiveness is right where we fell. And we receive that now that you wash us clean, that you give us a fresh start and there is no condemnation. Jesus, I pray that right now we would feel the weight and the burden lifting off of our shoulders. That I am free. That I am free. Let's declare that together. I am free. I am free. I am free, Jesus. And I pray that as we say that, that we would believe it because of your power, not because of willpower, not because of trying harder. And so we open our hands and our hearts to you and we receive that grace and that forgiveness and that victory in you, Jesus, today. And we say that we want to build our lives on you, on your love, not our, our, our willpower, our efforts, our trying harder to resist temptation. We build our lives on your love. God, we open our hearts to you. We worship you and we thank you, God for your love. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.